This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Workington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Today we have as our guest, Irene Freelich, the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and author of the memoir entitled Shattered Stars, Healing Hearts, Unraveling My Father's Holocaust Survival Story. And I'm Mary Elkins. We will hear how Irene found her father's video testimony and what she did to write his story and how she traveled to Europe and found the places and people who saved him. Welcome, Irene. Thank you so much, Mary and Kathy. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. Get us started a little with some of your background and how you found yourself in a place to deal with your father's story and get his story out to the world. So that's actually a really big question. Um, how I found myself in the place, I have to start with, I always knew that there was something not quite right in my family. Um, I knew my father was a Holocaust survivor, but he didn't share the details. And so I always had this sense of secrecy around my childhood and growing up around my family and, you know, what he endured. So I always carried this unspoken thing with me that I couldn't even really name until um, I started doing some reading and some research. And in 2017, the stuff in this country started um, getting pretty bad uh, in terms of acts of violent racism and anti-Semitism. And it got me very concerned and really reminded me about of what Nazi Germany was like in the 1930s. And so in 2017, I remembered that I had a testimony video that my father had recorded. So a lot of Holocaust survivors record these things called testimony videos. Some of them are recorded by the the USC Shoah Foundation. Some are recorded at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. My father's was recorded by I don't know who. Um, It was maybe privately done. But I knew I had it because his... Um, lady friend had sent it to me um, around the time that my father died. I watched it once, didn't quite follow it. It was him telling some of the stories. So I knew a little bit more, but it, it wasn't until 2017 that I decided to dig it out again, really listen to it. And this time, because we have the internet, um, as opposed to when I initially got the video, I could look up where these places were that he talked about. Um, where who the people were, and I started being able to research his story, and I got hooked. 
So anybody who does genealogy can probably relate to, you know, you find something, a, a photo or something that gives you a hint to a part of your family. So that started happening for me. And I was finding my family from Germany. And I was finding out details of my father's survival story during the Holocaust. Wow. So that's how it started. All in Germany or other places too? He was, he started in Germany. He was born in Germany, thankfully near the Dutch border. Mm. And most of his story takes place in the Netherlands because on Kristallnacht, which was November 9th to 10th, 1938, his family's home uh, and business were demolished. And uh, my grandfather always had a plan. And so the family, my father was 12 at the time, my family escaped to their roof, escaped to a neighbor, and then escaped across the border. And I was actually able to trace all of the places they went, including the exact border crossing. So it was Germany and the Netherlands. Wow. That that's, you really became quite, a detective. Wow. Yeah. It's quite it's a hard. journey. Can you imagine today having to do that? All the people coming over here from other countries are escaping something like that mm-hmm. or, or ecological, you know, drought, et cetera. But, right, yeah. right. Or the refugees from Syria and Turkey and all uh, oh, in South America, yeah. you know, there are so many refugees. And I think that if you haven't had that experience yourself, it's hard to imagine. And I can't imagine it, but I feel this huge empathy for people who are escaping places for their lives and very dangerous um, homes and also ways of getting, you know, across an ocean or the sea. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, on the note of your book, your subtitle tells us what this book is about, but can you Mm -hmm. tell us about the main title? What does it mean? Yeah. So thank you for asking that. Um, The Shattered Stars part of my main title has been with me since um, probably since before the book even was in my head. Oh. But um, star is the German word. The German word for star is Stern, which is my family's name, Stern. Oh. And they were shattered, right? Their family was shattered on this Kristallnacht that I just described and all the events that came after. So shattered stars. But when I started going through this journey of my own to un- unravel, uncover my father's Holocaust survival story and go to the places he was, I had the most incredible healing moments that were entirely unanticipated, unplanned. They just happened and they changed me. They transformed me. And so that's the healing hearts part. You know, I feel like I have been put on this path towards healing from inherited generational trauma. When they healed you, can you describe that feeling or, or a, a moment where you realized that things had changed for you? Um, the first moment that happened was actually on my second trip. I took three trips to Germany and Holland within a year. The first trip was just to find these places. I didn't know how it would go. And it was it was okay. It was really interesting and fascinating, but I didn't get, um, nothing transformed me. But we went back the second time for a triennial Kristallnacht commemoration Mm -hmm. ceremony 
in one of my ancestral hometowns. So not even where my father lived, but actually where my grandfather lived and was born. And so I went to that. And um, this town is very small. And 100 years ago, there were 105 Jews in the town out of about 800 people. So the population of Jews was huge. It was 12 or 13%, but it was very small. And they all kind of got along, right, until, until um, you know, until we know what happened, until the war happened. So now every three years, they have a commemoration ceremony in November where they invite back all of the known to them descendants of the Jewish people from that town for this day-long event where they, the town hosts us and we go to the cemetery and there's a ceremony and a, the um, morning prayer, the M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G um, prayer for the dead is recited and it's a haunting melody and it was recited by one of the descendants of the Jewish people of the town. And the mayor's words were so on target with what I was feeling. And it made me realize that this town and many, many other towns in Germany actually do something to commemorate and to own their past. And they they do what we in this country don't do, to be quite honest, to yes, own um, the past. And that blew me away. I couldn't stop sobbing at the ceremony. People were looking at me. But it it totally changed my perspective of who German people are and, yes. and that healing can happen and that reconciliation certainly can happen because it happened in this town and they talk about it. Yeah. So that was the first example of if, if only that event happened, um, I, I would feel amazingly transformed. But so mm. many things happened that week. That's yeah, fabulous. I can imagine. Well, you know, well, there are a lot of Holocaust memoirs and stories mm -hmm. out there by people who were the survivors. But this mm -hmm. one's different since it's your story in which you tell your father's story. Mm -hmm. And so how do you categorize this book? Yeah, so it's a memoir. Um, because it is about me and my story. And I do intertwine my father's story by um, imagining scenes in each of the places. So the way I structured the book is I travel to all the places he was and I tell the story in his chronological order. Um, and I talk about my experience in that spot. And then I imagine the scene as best I can based on all this research I've done and based on my father's testimony video um, to tell his part of the story. Mm -hmm. And some of that is it would be considered fiction because um, I don't know what the dialogue was, for example. So you would consider that fiction. But what I realized was I really needed to touch his story. I needed to imagine the scene and feel what it might have felt like for him. Whether I have it right or wrong, I needed to do that. And that was part of me healing and, and needing to write my memoir. So it's it's a little unusual in that sense. Mm. And it's also unusual because it is a, the child of a survivor or a second generation 2G memoir. And there haven't been so many of those yet because their survivors were writing their memoirs, but now there aren't so many survivors anymore. And most of them who were going to write a memoir have done so. 
But us second generation survivors have our own uh, baggage, I guess you could say, our inherited trauma, right? We Mm -hmm. didn't live through the trauma, but we did inherit it. And there's a lot written about inherited trauma. And so um, this book looks at that also, right? So it takes two pieces into it, the inherited trauma and then the traumatized person himself. Hmm. So true. Very complex. Um, You you mention in your book that 18 people helped your family to survive. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about them, who they were, and how did you learn their names? That's uncanny. So, yeah, one of the things that really amazes me, impresses me about my father's testimony video is how positive he was throughout it. And I didn't necessarily see that in him as a child because, again, he, you know, it just felt like he was troubled. He tried to have fun, but also there were secrets, right? So it really moved me when I heard his video and really listened to it and how he appreciated every single person that he mentioned. Uh, they helped him. And so he went through the story in that testimony video naming almost all of the 18 people. Um, There were two names that I think he didn't know, or maybe just one name that he didn't know. So I don't know the name of the limousine driver that drove them to the border, but I know what the car looked like. (laughs) And I know what the ride was like a little bit. So my father remembered their names and he stated their names and sometimes even spelled their names in the video. And And that enabled me to- when he made the video? No, when he At, escaped. He was 12 when he escaped. Mm. So, alone? And he was, with his family or he, alone? He was he was with his family, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was telling the story on the video um, when he was about 65, 66, 67 mm-hmm. even, 66. So, um, you know, so it's somebody having remembering from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there also are some inaccuracies in what he remembers, which we can talk about, which is really interesting. <laughs> but I do want to say first, he had gone back to Holland, not to Germany, but to Holland two years before he made his testimony video. And he researched um, some of the people who helped. So, for example... When they crossed over the border into Holland, they were arrested. And there's it, there's a police report that describes the arrest and the details of what happened. And he went to the town hall and got a copy of the police report. So he might not have remembered every little detail from when he was 12. He might not have even been privy to every little detail. But the police report filled that in for him. So we know the name of the man that tried to protect them when they crossed the border. We know the name of the policeman that arrested them to protect them. So he was the good cop. And we know the name of the town's mayor um, because he found these all in the police report. Amazing. Did you ever, uh, when you went in your travels, meet any of the the, uh, relatives of those people? We didn't meet those relatives, but we did meet the descendant of the man who hid my family. So in 1942, my father, his mother and grandmother went into hiding. His father and uncle were already, um, actually, they were already murdered at Auschwitz, but my family didn't know that yet. 
1942, the three of them went into hiding in the attic of a barn um, nearby where they were living at the time in Holland. And they were protected there for two and a half years in the attic, brought food every day, and I believe developed a close relationship with the farmer family. And um, my father stayed in touch with this family. He wrote them letters. And I do remember that as a kid when it must have been maybe the 50th anniversary or some anniversary of, of um, liberation. He sent them a silver platter uh, that was engraved with something. So I knew he stayed in touch with them. Wow. And Great. Yeah. And then, so when I went back, I had lost that information because um, they spoke no English and I spoke no Dutch. And um, a contact I made, I must have told him a little bit about the story and this family whose last name is Lonsink, which is a common name in this region. And this contact of mine said, I'm going to look up every name in the phone book until I find him. I'm going to call everybody. And he called one person. And that was the man whose father and grandfather had hid my family. Oh, I've got chills. Yeah. Found him right away. Found him right away, right away. And and when we went, he took me to meet this man who I can't even tell you how it felt. Um, I I feel like I call it soul cousins, like S-O-U-L cousins. We are cousins. We are family, even though we're not biologically family but we are connected in some very strong way and this man who doesn't speak English right so we had to have translation we were so connected um and we were crying the whole time it was such a moving experience um and he took us to the attic so we actually went into the attic where my father was hidden and I have a great picture of my brother and me standing in front of the little hiding space within the attic where my father, his mother and grandmother hid. And we're just embracing in front of that spot. And all three and, of them lived the whole two and a half years. They, they were, they lived to get yeah. out. They got out. Yeah. The mother they were and liberated. the grandmother. Yeah. They were liberated on April 1st, 1945. And my father's grandmother, my great grandmother died a month later. Two days after Holland, uh, two days after um, Holland was liberated, yeah, she was sick. What is so story. much stress? There's so much stress. Now you mentioned Beshert a few times in the book. So what does that mean? And can you tell us about those experiences? So I never believed in Beshert. Beshert is actually a German word that is also a, a, a Yiddish word. So. Um, you hear it used in both languages and it means bestowed or given or meant to be. So in Yiddish, which is how I first learned the word, you would say something like I married my Beshert, right? It, my meant to be person. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say on my trip, and I've never heard the term Beshert used to describe an event before, but I had so many things happen on this journey of mine that all I can say is they were a shared. They were meant to be. So meeting this Mr. Lansink is a good example of that. You know, I happened to tell the name to this man who looked him up in the phone book. It happened to be the first name in the phone book that he called. 
there were just so many things like that. I kind of feel like my father was guiding, you know, guiding me or guiding them. I don't really know, but it, it got to a point that I just sort of gave myself into just, just keep walking, keep going down the path and keep your eyes open <laughs> because amazing stuff is going to happen. And that happened dozens, dozens of times. That's so yeah. beautiful. That's like, that's also like miracles. Those are it, all the miracles is. happening for you. Yeah. 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 Can you tell us about uh, any other experience or is there something from your book you'd like to read that ties in with that? There's actually the most moving story I think I would love to read to you. And it is related to this man, Mr. Lansink. Hmm, perfect. Let's see. I have the page here. So I'll read excerpts from this chapter, which is chapter 33. It's called Meeting the Lansinks. And based on what I described before in this chapter, I talk about me meeting the Lansinks. And I intersperse it with my father meeting the older Lansinks the first time on the farm, right, when they have to go into hiding. So this is in my timeline. On an overcast, cool June morning in 2018, Seth, that's my husband, Josh, my son, David, my brother, and Robin, my sister-in-law, and I arrived in our rental car at an apartment in a town not far from St. Isidora's Huva, which is where the hiding place was. We noticed two men standing on a second floor balcony of the address we'd been given. They watched us approach. One man was Everett Jan, the person who had located Jan and set up this meeting. The other man must have been Jan. Jan Lansink, the grandson of the farmer who was also named Jan, was himself now a grandfather, and he lived in the apartment. Jan greeted us at the doorway, his eyebrows knit with the seriousness of this deeply emotional, even austere occasion. Jan, along with other Lansink family members, had spent time with my father in 1991 during his return to Holland. I'd learned that they had exchanged letters and phone calls with my father. Jan knew about my brother and me and about our respective children. Jan and his wife Vilma offered us a seat at the dining room table. You found the address? Okay, Everett Jan translated for Jan. Yes, the directions were easy, I said. Would you like some cake? Asked Vilma. That would be nice. I thanked her, though, as excited as I was, I had little appetite. Until a few weeks before our trip, I couldn't imagine I would be reunited with the Lansink family. My father had left me their address, but my someday I will write to them intention kept getting pushed aside until I thought I'd missed my chance. When I'd connected with Everett Jan through the Enschede Synagogue website, that's the local synagogue in that area, I must have provided enough of my family's history along with the Lansink family name. Unbeknownst to me, Everett Jan had taken it upon himself to call every Lansink, and there were many, in the area until he found the right one. He had only needed to make one call. Jan agreed to meet with us. To me, this was a miracle. At their dining room table, I handed Jan and Vilma the gift bag I had prepared. Sweets from Boston and something more symbolic, a wooden box with a cover that slides open. Engraved on the cover was a tree, a symbol of life 
and Avara Family Research. Inside it, I had placed a few of the tokens that we had made as symbols of hope and remembrance. I watched as Jan separated the yellow tissue paper that protected its contents. Jan looked at me, his mouth opened as if to call out, but no sound emerged. His eyes filled with tears. I didn't understand. After all, it was merely a wooden box, not a photo of our 1940s families together, not old letters between our families. Family photos and old letters would come later. Jan said some words in Dutch that I didn't understand. He stood up to retrieve something from a nearby hutch. It was a wooden box, rectangular, with a curved top into which was carved a tree. Jan opened the box and showed us the rosaries inside. It took me a few minutes to piece together this miracle inside a miracle. The tree-inscribed box was one of the little things my father had given them. I hadn't known. We sat there, Jan, Vilma, on one side of the table, Robin and me across from them, with everyone standing nearby, tears flowing freely. This wasn't sadness, yet it wasn't happiness. It was the realization that I had to be right where I was in that moment. The journey, no matter what I planned or didn't plan, had taken me where I needed to be. Perhaps I had no control over it. Perhaps my father had been leading the way the entire trip, leaving hints for us or guiding others to do what was necessary. At some level, I like to think he needed this as much as I did. Oh, another miracle. Beautiful. It's wonderful. I love that passage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a a little bit more about your experience in Germany? That was in in the Netherlands, right? Yeah. In Holland. And Mm -hmm. um, when you were in Germany, was it difficult for you to be there because of what happened there to your family and that they were chased out with uh, everything that went on with the, the Nazis there and that mm. era? It was really hard the first time being in Germany. Um, my father had sworn to never return. And he said that in his testimony video. And I had such difficulty making the decision to go to Germany, to step foot in, in Germany, knowing that he wouldn't do that. I went as far as, you know, once I decided I was going to Germany, I went as far as seeing how I could fly into Amsterdam and drive to Germany. <laughs> and it, as much extra driving as that was going to be, but but I didn't do that because that was just too much. That's, that's how much I didn't want to be in Germany. I learned a few German words so that I could speak with the descendant of the man who obtained my family's home and business. And oh. um, because I wanted to demonstrate that I was making an effort, but I didn't want to use the language and I certainly didn't want to hear the language. That was my first trip to Germany. I will say now I love the language. I love listening to it. I love learning it. And if I hear German or I hear a German accent, I would love to go up to that person and find out where they're from and um, have a conversation with them. What changed that? That that um, ceremony that I mentioned, the triennial ceremony that helped me to realize that 
the Germany of today is very different than the Germany of even, let's say, the 1970s or 80s. Um, and actually meeting the man whose ancestors had obtained my family's home and business, who still owns it and still lives in that space, he is a great guy. I really liked him. We're Facebook friends now. <laughs> and and there were a lot of really interesting stories, but just based on a one hour conversation I had with him where I showed him some photographs and he was visibly emotional about hearing a little bit of my father's story, um, totally changed my feelings about German people. Which is complete healing for you. It was yeah. really, when you got there, you, you healed from your inherited trauma. Right. Yeah. I, well, I'm still working on it. it. Yeah. But yeah. It was something that I didn't even know was possible. That's right. Well, when you were doing your book, how'd you decide which stories to include or exclude? And was that difficult for I you? It was very difficult because I probably cut 120 pages and the book is about 360 pages. Wow. It's there was a lot to tell. So, um, First of all, I'll say I really had to learn a lot about writing creative nonfiction, which is what a memoir is. Uh, it's not something that came easily to me. So I took a lot of classes and I spent a lot of time with editors. And what I learned was you need to identify the main themes, which I did. And I, I actually printed out the whole 400 some odd pages at one point and color-coded every single line in the book according to the theme. And if there was a page with nothing highlighted, that had to go. And that so that made it a little more of an objective decision-making process. It took a long time, obviously, to do that. But, um, you know, I loved every story. I didn't want to cut anything, but I had to. So, Well, so tell I us a little bit about a story that you had to leave out. Well, there's this amazing story. Again, it's a Beshert. And I remember I talked about my father going back to Holland to the town hall where he got the police report, right? Well, what I came to find out as I, you know, when I was pretty far along in writing my book was that there was a town archivist named Peter who had an assistant. And about three weeks prior to my father's visit, the assistant happened to find a police report about the Stern family. And they looked it over together and they said, I, we will never know what happened to this family. And they put it aside. They filed it away. So three weeks later, my father appears and he goes up to the desk and says, you know, my family was arrested, whatever he says. Um, I want to see if there's a police report. And the assistant overhears this. And goes to get Peter, and Peter says, I think I have something for you. And Peter hands my father the police report. And I didn't know any of this until I read a chapter that Peter wrote in Dutch, somebody translated for me, about this meeting that he had with my father. And I found it, like, probably in 2020. And I contacted Peter. And he told me that was one of the most rewarding moments of his entire career, meeting my father in that way. It's a fabulous story, but it doesn't fit in my narrative. <laughs> so I couldn't include oh, it. Oh, 
so sad when you have to drop something out like that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So true. Oh, gee. But you included it here. So that's important. I did. I did. And, you know, I have, um, I do three different presentations. The third one that I do is called The Shirts. And it's uh, like a collection of these Beshert moments, some of which, most of which are in the book, but not all of them. So this Peter story makes it into that presentation. So That's I good. particularly enjoy telling it. Great the, way to group it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, you've talked about how just traveling there has been therapeutic for you, but did the actual writing of the memoir, did that have any therapeutic uh, effects on you? Because a lot of authors find that writing memoirs can be therapeutic. Um, mm-hmm. How did it affect, how did it affect you personally and uh, emotionally? Thank you. So you know how people say journaling is really helpful if you're having some emotional, yeah. whatever. I never yes. loved journaling. I never journaled. Um, and so I didn't understand what journaling was really all about. But as I wrote, things would come out, like memories even from childhood would come out that I didn't know were in there. And the the act of writing, especially my very raw initial writing draft, whatever you want to call it, really did help me um, surface things that I wasn't aware of. And yeah, that that was very healing for me. And especially as I massaged those words and did draft after draft after draft and refined it, it forced me to um, listen to whatever was in my head to really listen and dig deeper. And I'm sure that was part of the healing process for me. Wonderful. That's great. Well, your memoir touches on themes of courage resilience, and growth. Can you elaborate a little bit on the lessons that you hope readers will take away from your story? Yeah, I feel like I'm on a mission. And um, especially yeah. in these times, it you know, life as a Jewish person can be very hard, especially since October 7th, but even before that. And uh, it is now I feel incumbent on me to help share that message. And it's not just about anti-Semitism. It's also about the refugee crisis everywhere in the world. It's also about hunger everywhere in the world. It's also about Islamophobia in so many places in the world. There are so many um, problems in the world. And what I hope people will take away from both my book and the presentation I do about my father's story is the importance of standing up, speaking out and acting, you know, with courage, doing something, uh, being what's called an upstander, not just a bystander, because inaction actually is action. It's Mm -hmm. complicity. It's going along. And so I hope people will take away the, the extreme importance, especially today of, of acting, of speaking up, of writing their congressperson, of voting, of getting people to vote, of sending money if they can to organizations that help feed people or house people. I just want people to act. It doesn't have to be against anti-Semitism, but it has to be for human beings in some way. That's my goal. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, can you talk about some of your other 
presentations that you've done and one that has moved you and you've seen that has actually moved your audience? Mm. So my primary presentation I do is telling my father's story. And the way I do it is I tell it with my father using his video testimony. He died over 25 years ago, but he's still alive in these presentations. So he and I, kind of like the book, tell the story of his survival together. And we meet some of those 18 people. And I show pictures of the places from then and from now. So um, people can really get a feel for what that, um, I guess you can't really get a feel for what that experience was like, but it brings it to life in a multimedia presentation. So um, those, of course, that's my go-to presentation. That's the real message that I just described that I want to send. And I've done, you know, dozens and dozens of those to thousands of people. But you travel a lot. I do travel. I travel when people are would like me to travel. I'm happy to do that. Yes, mm-hmm. particularly on the East Coast, since that's where I'm located. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is there is one um, event, one presentation that I keep thinking of. This this just sticks with me. So you know, during the presentation, one of the things I talk about is how many people did the Nazis kill during the Holocaust, and it's the 6 million Jews, but I also go through the list of all the other groups of people that were murdered because of who they were. And that includes um, a few hundred thousand disabled people, including um, people on autism spectrum disorder. So at the end of, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. You might want to look up Asperger and see um, how he ties into the killing of children. Yes. It it was shocking to me to learn this. So at the end of the presentation, a young man comes up with his support dog and his parents. Uh, He must've been a teenager, I think. And he thanked me very eloquently for this beautiful presentation that was so meaningful to him. He was going to tell his classmates about it. And with his permission, his parents shared that their son is on autism spectrum. And this really hit home for him because he would have been one of these children. I I don't know if he was Jewish or not, but he very clearly to me understood um, what could have been if he lived back then. And so I just, I just hold him in my heart. I don't even know his name, but that really impacted me. Obviously it would. That's amazing. And, you know, you write about memory and differences in how people remember the same event. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that? You must have run into that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, when I used my father's stories from his video testimony, I needed to research everything that he talked about if I was going to yeah. use it as fact, right? Um, and so I did that. And he was he was very accurate about so many things. But there's one story that he talks about, um, which is the cable watch in which um, there was, you know, communication cables laid out uh, on the streets in uh, this Dutch town that he was living in. This is before he went into hiding. And the Nazis were in power in, in the country at this time. And somebody chopped the cables. And so the Germans put 
uh, cable watch duty into place. And every hundred feet or so, whoever was on duty had a watch for two or three hours. And if the cable was going to get cut again, they would be in big trouble. And so what happened was the, the cable was cut again and there was a big roundup and about 70 Jewish men were sent to Mauthausen, a concentration camp, and were killed there. My father's telling of the story is that they were lined up in the town square and gunned down in the town square. Now, that didn't happen in this story, but it did happen in another town. So he was conflating the two. It's not like he was so far off, but, but his memory about it or his understanding of it wasn't quite right. So um, I had the opportunity in the book because I was, you know, talking about my experience as well as his experience, I could explain that I found what I just described to you that, you know, he was so um, traumatized by this roundup that happened, that he remembered it a little differently than it actually happened. It's still very traumatic. But you can imagine if you're 12 years old, how you could combine those because they're both yeah. so horrible. Yeah. And whichever one is the most horrible in your mind is the one that becomes the, the big one. Right. The true one. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really difficult. And, you know, none of us have perfect memory, you know. So I talked with my brother a lot about, do you remember that, you know, thing in the garage when we were growing up? And he, you know, he was... In his, from his viewpoint, and I was from my viewpoint, and we have totally different memories about it. Yeah, always. So memory is really interesting that way, and um, I learned a lot about it reading memoir and and learning about writing um, memoir, memoir, which is memory, uh, and how well this is just this memoir is just my memory and my understanding of things. Somebody else might remember something differently than. Then I remembered it. For sure. But what a gift you've given. Thank you so much. I, I have a, a question that you may already have answered, which is, and you brought it up, um, other than um, stand up and speak out and make a difference. What do you have another takeaway today or would you, for our audience, or would you like to elaborate on that one more? I will add one more, actually which is um, don't wait for your maybe one day. You know, I waited 25 years after my father died to dig out his testimony video and start researching it again. I really wish I had asked him questions. Yeah. And, you know, how many of us wish we had asked like the elders in our family or in our close family friends the questions and then it's too late. So for anyone who's listening, who has elders in their family and they're not the elders, I would suggest asking the questions. And for those of us who are the elders, I guess I'm an elder in my family now <laughs> collecting all this, but I'm setting it up so that my nieces and nephews and kids know that I have this information. You know, they certainly have the book. They're going to have recordings of the presentations I do, um, but I want them to think of the questions that they have so that, you know, in 25 years or whatever, in 40 years, that it won't be too late because I'll be gone. So uh, that's what I would um, put out there for people. 
That's right. And so true. And, and for our audience, I hope everybody does that. Thank you so much, Irene. Our guest today in Late Boomers has been Irene Freelich, author of the book, Shattered Stars, Healing Hearts, Unraveling My Father's Holocaust Survival Story. You can reach Irene at her website, shatteredstars.org. And that's S-H-A-T-T-E-R-E-D-S-T-A-R-S dot org. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary and Kathy. It's such a pleasure. We so appreciate our listeners and ask you please to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast. And also please subscribe on the platform where you listen to your podcasts. We love your support and we always like to hear from you. Either on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers or on our website, lakeboomers.biz, B-I-Z. Our goal is to always inspire you and energize you. Thanks again, Irene. Thank you so much, Mary and Kathy. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.